biggest news, the biggest reaction from the biggest sports. We've got your sporting fix covered all in one place. You're listening to the Sports Bubble. Yes, hello and welcome back to the Sports Bubble, the all-in-one sports podcast bringing you the biggest headlines from the biggest sports. Coming up on today's show, we'll have reaction, as ever, to another week in the NFL. The Baltimore Ravens were humbled, I think it's fair to say, by the Chiefs last night. Find out if Rory still thinks they're Super Bowl contenders. Is Russell Wilson unstoppable at the minute? It's now 14 touchdowns in three games for the Seahawks quarterback, which has never been done before. We'll also have a preview of the French Open, which got underway on Sunday. Rafael Nadal is seeking an unprecedented 13th Roland Garros title, but can Novak Djokovic stop him from doing so? But first, we're starting with the football. It was an unbelievable weekend of Premier League action. There was VAR controversy, Leicester upset Manchester City, Manchester to United, upset Brighton, and there was even a win for West Ham as well. But I think we have to start with the VAR controversy. Amidst everything that happened over the weekend, I think this was the biggest talking point. Tottenham 1-0 up against Newcastle, 90th minute into stoppage time, and then seemingly out of nowhere, Andy Carroll wins a header, hits Eric Dyer's arm, knows nothing about it. There wasn't really any opportunity for him to get out of the way. There was nothing he could have done to prevent that from happening but under the new rule changes it doesn't matter anymore whether or not a handball is accidental and it was given a penalty Newcastle scored it to steal draw and I mean you you saw the game Rory you you saw the incident as we all did what were your first thoughts on it I mean Jamie Carragher on commentary if you haven't heard it already was absolutely livid we've heard multiple managers come out and say how livid they were as well. Even Steve Bruce, the Newcastle manager, said that it was an awful decision and he was almost embarrassed, I think, to take a point away from that game. What were your first thoughts on it? I mean, were you as outraged as everyone else? Well, it look... There's no ifs and buts about it. That decision ruined that game. Honestly, I was watching the mo- most of that game and I'm, I'm, a, I'm a neutral here. I'm, I have no affiliation with Tottenham Hotspur. I watched the All or Nothing documentary, which is brilliant. But... To be quite honest, Tottenham just dominated that game. And they were leading from the 25th minute through Lucas Moura's goal. They looked, I wouldn't say comfortable necessarily, but Newcastle didn't even, for as long as I was watching, I don't think they created a single chance or really even looked like threatening to score or, or doing anything. And it, it was literally in the 95th minute when this ridiculous penalty was awarded. And it was just really sad to see because Spurs had put ed- everything on the line, worked really hard to get all three points. They'd been dominating that match. They'd been winning the entire game then out of nowhere there's this absolutely outrageous VAR decision to to give a penalty for something that just look what I, I believe in the eye test as well does that look like a penalty really really what else is interesting and what else is very telling is what players even reacted to it when it happened I don't even I don't think any of the Newcastle players were even considering that as a penalty when it when the incident first happened I don't think any of them was even I yep. think they just carried on playing. And that, that is extremely telling. If the players on the pitch themselves don't see it as a penalty, even when it happened or see it as a cause to protest, then what, what's that telling you? Yeah, I completely agree with that. Because we see footballers on a football field appeal for almost anything. Normally, every, sing- every time it strikes an arm, every tackle in a penalty area, every time a player falls over, especially if a 
team is chasing the game, then we'll see them appealing for everything. But like you said, there was very limited protest, if any, by the Newcastle players. And it almost came as a surprise to them, or it definitely came as a surprise to them when the penalty was actually given. As I said before, there's been a number of managers that have been very outspoken about this issue. Just take a listen to this. I do not understand how we in football, and I'm talking now about the Premier League, I'm talking about referees, I'm talking about managers, I'm talking about coaches, and I'm talking about players. I do not understand how we have allowed this rule to come into operation. Uh, for me, handball is a very simple rule. When you deliberately handle it to stop a goal being scored or to get an advantage, it's handball. And when the ball hits you and you can do nothing about it, it's not handball. So, Roy Hodgson's received a lot of praise for what he said in that interview there. And <laughs> I entirely agree with him as well. I think it really is as simple as he's making it. For years, the way the handball rule worked was if you intentionally use your hand or use your arm to gain an advantage, then it's a handball. If you're not trying to gain an advantage or it was accidental, then play goes on. Then it's not a handball. I, I, it shouldn't have to be any more complicated than that, do you not think? If you just fire a ball at someone and it happens to hit them at anywhere in their body, and that's just absolutely absolutely ridiculous to give that as a penalty. I mean, what, are we, are we going to see players just putting the face in front of the ball so they don't give away a handball or... Or putting whatever else in, 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 in the firing line. It's just so, so stupid that this is even... That this has come to pass. I, I do agree with Roy Hodgson. I think VAR has obviously met a lot of criticism in its... Well, it's not even two years now since it's been in the Prem, is it? Is it... it it's an absolute farce because, ironically, in that same game, I was watching it and Harry Kane, who is a very intelligent footballer, I saw on at least two occasions received the ball for Tottenham after crosses had been put in and he deliberately struck the ball as hard as he could at the Newcastle defenders, almost in the hope that it might catch the arm of one of them and it might be given a penalty. It's so clever on his part, but just ridiculous that football has come to that where you can quite literally just kick the ball at someone and, and get a penalty. I mean, you've just got to think about it logically. I mean, I've got, the, I've got the new rules actually in front of me and I'm going to read out some of them to you because I've been looking at them before we actually recorded this podcast and I've looked them up and down and they still don't make that much sense to me. So I'll read some of them out to you now. So a player will be penalised for handball if... The hand or arm is clearly away from the body and outside brackets the body line. Okay. The body line. Uh, the body line. What? What's the body what is line? Is that a new underwear range or what? <laughs> but I mean, what is the body what is line? That? So next, the player clearly leans into the path of the ball. So a player's not allowed to lean now, are they? I, 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 again, very... Lean. strange but do they have to be does that mean they have to be entirely upright the entire time like, are, surely, they, are they allowed to like surely, surely every time a player challenges for the ball they're leaning into the path of the ball this is the worst one for me the ball travels some distance some what just some, some distance what so like some millimeters or some ten thousand miles millimeters what's centimeters what's it gonna miles, be miles kilometers honestly like, it, it, it's the most ridiculously ambiguous thing i've ever heard Along with these these very ambiguous rules you've just you've just read out, just use your eyes. Just use your eyes and tell me what do you see? Do you see a penalty? Do you see any any foul play going on? Do you see anything that even remotely resembles a handball? The, the answer is, even if you're a Newcastle fan, 
it's just not a penalty, is it? Of course it's not. There's not one football fan in the world that would argue that's a penalty. Because the fact that now you can receive a penalty for something which is purely accidental and in, especially Eric Dyer's case, completely unpreventable, it's just a farce. And what's he meant to do? I'm trying to think of the right vocabulary here because I, I I I keep repeating myself, but there isn't really any other way... To describe it, do you know? You take a look at that situation, and what was Eric Dyer supposed to do? Because with the handball rule as it is, the only thing he could have done is not challenge for the ball. Considering a handball, you've got to think what's the advantage of that? Was what was it? A contested ball that was probably not even going to end up in the back of the net. Compare that to what happened to what happened with Manchester United. If you're going to compare the the two penalty instances, there's just daylight between them. Honestly, it's like one of them is is quite literally a guy using his arm to prevent a goal, deliberately and consciously doing that. The other one is a guy who's just jumped up to do a header, doesn't even know where his arms are, and the ball travels like a couple of centimetres to hit it. It's just, I, I, I cannot fathom it, honestly. The very fact, as you say, that people are comparing the two incidents speaks volumes to how stupid the rule is, because, as you say, Mopai's handball was completely deliberate. <laughs> the Dias one just wasn't. Uh, you can't put it any more simply than that. The question I wanted to raise before we move on is a lot of people have criticised VAR in this incident. They blamed VAR for why that penalty was given. And there's been, obviously there's been so much talk of VAR being scrapped and fans, managers, players coming out saying they don't like it. But in my personal opinion, you can't blame VAR in this situation. It wasn't VAR's fault at all. It was the rule itself the, the problem people, is the rule yeah, not, not, not VAR true. all VAR did was give the referees the opportunity to look at the incident again and advise that maybe they should make a decision based on what the rules were VAR in the Manchester United game worked perfectly because as you said Mopai deliberately stopped a goal scoring opportunity with his hand the referee blew for full time and VAR was fantastic in that situation because rightly so Manchester United deserved a penalty no I, th- I think the rules are, are pretty archaic it's the technology look people just don't like change especially in football I've been a rugby fan for a long time and if the Super League literally which is worth a fraction of the Premier League has had video referee for as long as I can remember and cricket has had like a video umpire as well for quite some time and yeah it's benefited all of those sports and it's, it's actually been quite a decisive factor in, in ironing out these things. I agree. I think that it's impossible for us to have a debate and have an argument on this because it, in both of our opinions, especially, there is no debate. It, if any of you do disagree or if any of you do think that the right decision was made in that game and you do think this new handball rule has been brought in for the better of football, then do get in touch with us. Do let us know and we'd love to hear what you think. Get in touch uh, on our social media, on Twitter and on Instagram at The Sports Bubble. We'll try and respond to you, maybe even get you on the show uh, because, yeah, we, we, we can't have a debate on something that it just seems categorically wrong whichever way you look at it. But moving away from mid-table teams like Manchester United and Tottenham and on to some title contenders in Manchester City and now Leicester it seems. What a result this was at the Etihad Stadium. 5-2 to Leicester. The first time in 686 games that a Pep Guardiola side has conceded five in a game. The first time in 438 games that they've conceded five in the Etihad. 
and Leicester scored these five goals whilst only having 28% possession. Talk us through this game, Rory. Just how impressed were you with Leicester? Do you consider them title contenders now or were City just very, very bad? Well, City were pretty bad. I think they were very clumsy in the penalties that they conceded through, what was it, Kyle Walker for the first one, Eric Garcia for the second one, and then uh, Benjamin Mendy Mendy. later on. So conceding three penalties, whatever way you look at it, is sloppy defending. Man City created very few chances for themselves. I think they're desperately missing Sergio Aguero being up front. Their attack just didn't look competent, to be honest. And I think Leicester were playing that brand of football we've seen them play in the, the counter-attacking football, and it worked wonders for them. I actually, I actually felt quite sorry for Leicester early on when, <laughs> when Riyad Mahrez smashed in that volley and then celebrated against his own team without fans even being there. I thought, oh, yeah. if, I, if I were a Leicester fan, I'd be, I, I probably wouldn't like to see that, but you probably would love to see what happened for the rest of that game. What I'm interested in, though, about what I'd like to talk about with this, this Leicester game is actually Rodri's comments after it, I thought were very, very telling, let's just say. He said, for me, they were lucky. Football has not been fair to us. Maybe it is our fault. Maybe it's their strength, but it's very difficult to explain. We did a lot of good things to win the game. A team like Leicester comes here and plays with 11 guys behind the ball. I'm young and try to learn every game, but games like this where the opposition do nothing... You're, you're a bit confused. I'm not the way I like to play. Look, honest to God, if he seriously thinks that scoring five goals equates to doing nothing, you seriously need a reality check. You need to take a good long look at yourself and think, why is that entitled mentality that teams that have success in terms of winning titles often fall into? You see teams that... It happened to United when United were, when we were winning titles. You'd see often... Teams that win titles and are elite teams, have elite squads, they seem to develop this sort of entitled mentality where they just think that they deserve to win games and they're automatically better than other teams and they're automatically doing more. In that game, Leicester were by far the better team, even if they only had 28% of possession. And I think that's incredibly, incredibly stupid of him to make those comments. I think that if you were to interpret what he said... Those Manchester City players would have been sitting in the dressing room after the game thinking, how on earth did we lose that game 5-2? And then it would have dawned on them, oh, actually, I know why we lost that game 5-2. It's because our defence was absolutely terrible. But Rodri's obviously not going to go out in his press conference and say and blame his defence. He's not going to turn on his own teammates. He can't do that. In a way, I, I think Rodri's comments were stupid. I think that he should have been more restrained. He could have just said, yeah, we played badly. We'll move on to next week. Well done to Leicester and be done with it. And given a, a typical footballer's interview where he gives nothing away and moved on to next week and that was that. No one would be talking about it. But in a way, I do agree with what he said because it was a really strange game to watch because for the first 35 or the first half an hour of that game at the very least, City were all over Leicester. They were all over them. Leicester barely had a touch of the ball. City looked imperious. It looked like one of those games where Leicester just wouldn't even be able to touch it. And then seemingly out of nowhere, they gave away a penalty Leicester got a bit of momentum, then scored a good second goal, actually. It was a fantastic finish by Vardy. Brilliant ball into the box by Timothy Castan, their new fullback signing, uh, who looks very good, I might add, uh, as a replacement. Uh, not just to Chilwell, but he can play it right back as well, like he did on Sunday. So it was a good second goal. Leicester suddenly got momentum, and the game turned from there. But Leicester only had seven shots all game. 
got three penalties and scored five goals. City had 78% possession, a number of chances. I'm not saying that they deserve to win the game. I think Leicester did do well. They counterattacked very well. City weren't as good as they could have been, especially in that second half. But that scoreline flattered Leicester. I think what's interesting, though, is do we take Leicester seriously now as title contenders? No. Well, not, title, not title contenders. They're a, good, they're a good Premier League team now. They're going to be a top-half team for years to come, I think. That's clear to see. Brendan Rodgers has done a good job. But we saw near the end of last year that they are not quite good enough to even be a Champions League team, let alone a title-contending team. So, so you, don't see them, you don't see them as a top-four side then? No, not at all. Wow. Not in the slightest. They don't have anywhere near... We've spoken about this with uh, Manchester United, Arsenal. They don't have anywhere near enough squad depth, Leicester. They've got a good starting eleven on paper. If Vardy gets injured, they're done for. Well, I guess and they the, thing, the thing is with Leicester is they are a selling club. And they, I mean, they've literally just got rid of Chilwell for 50 million. So I think you're right to a certain degree. But I do think Leicester maybe, if they keep churning out these good players, if they keep developing players, and if they just stick around for long enough, I actually think they can finish in the top four this season. I think so far, you look around the league, at the other teams who'd be competing for top four, and... Look, Manchester United have made a, a terrible start. Chelsea, their new signings so far haven't gelled and they've not made a good start. They couldn't even beat West Brom for crying out loud. Tottenham have been unlucky in that last game, but also haven't made the brightest start. And you've got to think Leicester are one of the very few teams, them and Everton actually, who have made really, really promising starts to the league behind Liverpool. Moving on, though, to the NFL, and we've got to start with the Ravens versus Chiefs game from last night. I'll hand this one straight over to you, Rory. Talk us through what went wrong with your team. What didn't go wrong? What went, what went right in this, in this game? Honestly, I'm, as a fan, I'm disappointed. My prediction was off. I genuinely thought the Ravens looked like a more complete team, and they'd been totally dominant their first two weeks of the season. Judging from what I'd seen, Kansas City Chiefs in the first two weeks of the season didn't actually impress me that much. They they struggled against the Texans in week one. They struggled even more against the Chargers in week two, and I really fancied my team going into this game, but boy, was I wrong. And the way this game finished, I mean, watching this game just get out of hand, I think it was the second quarter was the big turning point. The Ravens on the first drive of the game, go down the field, get the field goal. And then sort of after that, their offense just sort of fizzles out. On Kansas City's first possession, they they go and score that, that touchdown in the first quarter. And then in the second quarter, when Mahomes and the Chiefs were able to march down the field, get three more touchdowns and put up 21 points in the second quarter, that's when the game got out of hand. Tyreek Hill was an absolute menace that game, and the Ravens just didn't really have an answer to it. He had five receptions, 77 yards, and a touchdown, but in, in the first and se- first half of that game, he was just absolutely unplayable. And I think, to be honest, Mahomes was just making throws throughout that game, which just shouldn't be made by a human being. Honestly, no one else. No one else would be capable of making those those throws. The way he he pitched the ball to to the fullback for the for, for I think the second or third touchdown later in the game, he, he threw a touchdown pass to Eric Fisher, the, the the lineman. That offense is just trying things that no other offense could try. I remember the the touchdown strikers in particular to Tyreek Hill in the first half was absolutely unbelievable. He was covered the entire way, and Mahomes just placed an absolutely perfect ball there for for Tyreek Hill to come down and make the catch. I think to be honest that the Chiefs just manhandled the Ravens and I think Mahomes in that in that game was absolutely unplayable. Four touchdown passes, 
385 passing yards, a near-perfect passer rating score. As for my Ravens, it's just disappointing because we couldn't get things going on offense. Lamar Jackson had less than 100 passing yards, one touchdown. The offense as a whole struggled. And I think it just goes back to playing from behind. This offense just is not designed to play from behind. And while, while the defense kept us in that game, the offense just didn't have an answer. Well, I hate to say I told you so, but I did tell you so on the podcast last week this is what happened with the Kansas City Chiefs now they are the new Patriots they're not we've the seen, new Patriots they are they're the new Patriots. Patriots we've seen no. them we've seen them time and time again come from behind win whilst playing badly so when they actually play well like they did against the Ravens last night they are almost unstoppable which is what happened and also the other thing I said on the podcast which mirrors what you've just said there is Ravens don't know how to play from behind We've seen it time and time again. When they're winning, they're fantastic. Opening two games of this season, I don't think they were ever down at any point in any game. But I said it last week. If they went down early, which is what happened, then they try and force the ball too much. Yes, I understand that the best part of Lamar Jackson's game is his running game. And if the Ravens are losing, then they are going to have to throw the ball a little more. It just feels like they're forcing it too much. It feels like Jackson was almost trying to be Mahomes last night. You sort of have to when you're playing Mahomes. When when he's constantly putting up points and marching down the field, you sort sometimes that happens. And I guess also in that game, the the Chiefs defense did a very good job at stopping the the Ravens running game, which I didn't think was possible. But to a certain degree, they stalled all the sort of inside zone runs up the middle. And they didn't really didn't really have much success with that. It was only really the sort of outside runs and the um the quarterback carries that really actually gained any yardage yardage, to be honest, against against that Chiefs defense. So my question to you is I think it's clear that the Chiefs were deserving victors last night they played fantastically well Mahomes was brilliant was this just a bad day at the office for the Ravens do you still see them as potential AFC contenders or was this a bit of a reality check that maybe maybe you're not quite there yet still well I think this was a reality check that we still that the the problems that that ended our season when, when we got thrashed by Tennessee back in back in January those problems still exist we didn't we don't have a good enough pass rush and we don't know how to play from behind. But I'm not going to give up on my own team yet, and especially considering the amount of the amount of success that the Ravens had in those first two weeks. And when you consider that the, the, they're still playing one of the best teams in the league, they're playing Mahomes, who for some reason always just plays absolutely unbelievably well against the Baltimore Ravens defense. I don't know why. For some reason, in three games against the Ravens, he's been absolutely unplayable. He seems to save his best football for these types of games. And honestly, I do still think the Ravens are absolutely contenders in the AFC. I still see the AFC coming down to the Baltimore. Baltimore Ravens and the Kansas City Chiefs but look we're in week three of the season week yeah, three of course. yeah I, th- I think there's a lot of football to be played and the only thing I would say is the Ravens need to go out and get a pass rusher honestly we couldn't get any pressure on Mahomes during that game and we just we just need a we need we need we need to trade for a pass rusher we missed out on Jadavian Clowney who is now in Tennessee but we need someone there speaking of unplayable quarterbacks though I think it's time we spoke about Russell Wilson who is tearing up the NFL at the minute 14 touchdowns touchdowns in his first three games of the season this has never been done before it's unprecedented he I mean the Seahawks look just brilliant watching Wilson at the weekend he was just he just seems imperious he seems on a different planet to anyone else at the minute just how impressed have you been with him 
I've been very impressed with Russell Wilson. I'm not remotely surprised, though. I really fancied the Seahawks to make it out of the NFC and go to the Super Bowl and probably win it before the season began. Because last season, they actually came came within one non-call on a pass interference that would have given them home field advantage in the playoffs and would have changed their fortunes. The way Russell Wilson's been playing this season as well, 14 touchdowns in three games. He's the first NFL quarterback to ever do that. He's also the first quarterback in history to throw for five touchdowns in two consecutive games. And he's not even playing against bad teams. He's playing against the New England Patriots and then against the Dallas Cowboys, who have some real studs in that defense. I was, I was extremely impressed with, with Russell Wilson. And it's becoming a weekly occurrence now. Every week we seem to be tweeting something that we see Russell Wilson doing in the game. He's unstoppable. For me, he's the best deep ball thrower in the NFL. Connected with DK Metcalf and Tyler Lockett, who have two severely underrated wide, wide receivers. Yeah, I mean, the combination Metcalf. between Wilson and Metcalf has been yeah, on another level this year so far, hasn't it? But let's just talk about that DK Metcalf uh, fumble for a second. Oh, it, it was quite funny, wasn't it? And we've spoken about this before. Everyone's spoken about it before I think the way that footballers showboat when they score a TD it's unnecessary it's never going to change we know that it's it's part and parcel of football it's it's always been done and it's never going to change but that doesn't make it any better and we saw another occurrence of it at the weekend where DK Metcalf in for a comfortable touchdown it seems celebrated a little too early before he'd actually got into the end zone and then out of nowhere Trayvon Diggs comes from behind knocks the ball out of his hand and that was that no touchdown uh, for the Seahawks eventually Metcalf actually made amends by scoring the winning touchdown later in the game but I mean it was funny to see wasn't it a lot of people comparing it uh, to some of the mistakes we used to see from the likes of Sean Jackson if you remember yeah it is it is amusing I mean like look I mean showboating in, in the NFL is is quite Ever since, ever since Dion Sanders just took it to the next level back in the 90s when you'd see this guy high-stepping into the end zone or spinning around and dancing around with the football and doing all sorts of wacky stuff. Just score the touchdown. Just score the touchdown, honestly. Like, I mean, if Belichick... I mean, I, I saw a meme earlier today. Like, If Belichick was the head coach, he'd have, he'd have traded him the next day for a sixth-round pick or something. I saw that, yeah. And there is some truth in that. I know you're trying to... You're kind of taking this Roy Keane mentality line of like you know just score the touchdown and it's unacceptable I don't think he's out of order for doing that because let's be honest it's something we see every game we see players do that every single game Metcalf should have had some more awareness and I guess as a second as a second year receiver he's still pretty inexperienced he'll learn like as, as the years go on to sort of check that at least the coast is clear and there's not a defensive back just right immediately behind him ready to to smack the ball out and create a touchback great play by by Trayvon Diggs actually by the way I mean after being blown in coverage but still good obviously good awareness to force the fumble to be honest DK Metcalf though although that was hilarious to see and it was a massive L he does look absolutely fantastic already he has almost 300 receiving yards in three games he's averaging like 24 yards a catch which is insane He's got three touchdowns and he's looking like a number one. Tyler Lockett as well doesn't get enough credit. He's looking like a number one. Caught three touchdowns just last week. I think this Seahawks offense will take a lot of stopping. And for me, they're just on a collision course with the Super Bowl. 
finishing off the show today, we're going to discuss some more tennis. It was the French Open which got underway on Sunday. Final Grand Slam of this year, rescheduled to take place after the US Open because of the coronavirus pandemic. I suppose where I want to start with this is what everybody's been talking about. Nadal versus Djokovic. Can anybody stop Rafael Nadal this year? Is the question which everyone seems to ask. Every year somebody comes out and says, yeah, maybe maybe TM can win this year. Maybe Federer can win this I'll year. I'll do it. Maybe Djokovic can win this year. And they're always wrong. Nadal going for his 13th Roland Garros title now. So I'm going to ask the same question to you, Rory. Can anybody stop Nadal this year? Hell no. Hell no. Well, why should this year be any different? He's won it 12 times, for God's sake. Like, it's, it's uncanny. The, the success he's had in Roland Garros has never, done be, done, never, never been done before and will never be done again. And I think to, to pick against Rafael Nadal going into the French Open, you'd have to be a moron. You'd have to be a moron to, pick, to bet against Nadal. Even as good as Djokovic has been, I still don't think he can stop it now. Not, not on clay, not at Roland Garros. I just, I just can't see him doing it, honestly. The, the, success, the success he's had. So ever since 2005, he's won it 12 times. So that's what, like 12 of the 15 years, he's won the tournament. And I think a couple of those he'll have missed through injury as well. So He's only lost two games at the French Open ever. Ever? He's ever. I mean, he's retired through injury once as well, but I, mean, I don't think you can really count that. But the only two games he's ever lost are to Djokovic, uh, in the quarterfinals in 2015, I think it was, and to Robin Soderling a few years before that, the year where Federer won his only French Open title. But other than that, yeah, he's never lost. Well, there you go. He's not going to lose this year, is he? You'd have to be an absolute moron to argue otherwise. Yeah, well, maybe I am an absolute moron, and some people are probably going to think that I am just arguing this for the sake of it to try and be different. But I'm going to stick my neck on the line here. And I'm going to say outright that I categorically believe that Novak Djokovic is going to win the French Open this year. I'm willing to go out on a limb and say that. And I'll tell you why. I'm not disputing that Nadal is the greatest ever tennis player on clay. 12 French Open titles. He's beaten Djokovic at the French Open on a number of occasions now. I think they've met seven times and... Nadal's won six of them. And as I said, the only time Djokovic has won is the quarterfinals in 2015. Do I think that Nadal's a contender this year? Obviously. You've seen people write him off in years prior to this when he hasn't gone into the tournament in that much form or playing that much tennis. And he's proved everybody wrong. And he is just imperious on that surface. But at the same time, Novak Djokovic comes into this competition differently compared to previous years. You cannot ignore his form leading into the French Open this year. Novak Djokovic is still yet to lose a tennis match in 2020. The only way he's been knocked out of a tournament is by being disqualified and hitting a line judge in the face. The only way Novak Djokovic doesn't win the French Open is if... It's another line judge with a tennis ball. Because you cannot ignore his form. He's unbeaten in 2020. He bounced back from that US Open disqualification the next week by winning the Italian Open on clay. And I think the anger of being knocked out of the US Open is going to fuel him here. We saw it in the Italian Open. He would have been so gutted to be knocked out of that tournament that that's going to spur him on even more. I think one of the problems people had with Djokovic, and we saw it a few years ago, was that he didn't actually have that much motivation left because he'd won so many Grand Slams. He almost said that he fell out of love with 
tennis a bit and struggled to motivate himself. He is not going to have those problems leading into this. That US Open disqualification is going to fuel him more than ever. And also, I know I said it's something that you can't read too much into, but... He has played considerably more tennis than Rafael Nadal has recently. And when you consider how close they are in ability, I would back the player that's unbeaten all year, played in a Grand Slam tournament just a few weeks ago, come off the back of an Italian Open win on clay, rather than the man that we're not entirely sure on his fitness levels, if he's at full fitness or not. And yes, you know, he's the greatest player on clay ever, but this is Djokovic's year. But honestly, joking aside though, I think... It would take a lot to beat Nadal. And the point you just mentioned about playing more tennis, is that always a good thing? He's not going to be more tired than Nadal if he's played more matches? I mean, maybe, it's a good point. maybe, maybe he has some extra motivation from being disqualified. Like in, I mean, that was just one of the, the, the craziest instances I've ever seen on a tennis court. But to be honest, yeah, I'm going to stick by my guns. So obviously, Nadal and Djokovic are the two favourites leading into this tournament. Are there any other contenders for you? Someone who certainly won't be a contender this year is Andy Murray. He's already been eliminated by Stan Wawrinka in the first round. Murray suffered his worst ever loss in a tennis grand slam, falling to Wawrinka 6-1, 6-3, 6-2. It was another dismal display by Murray. I think it was... Another performance which was just... It was just sad to watch and sad to see. He's come out in a press conference afterwards saying that he's going to continue playing tennis, still plans to play in more tournaments before the end of the year, but... I mean, it's getting to the stage now. I don't want to go into a long discussion on it, but it was sad, wasn't it? It is sad to see. I think it, you can, it says a lot about his mentality that he's going to keep playing literally until the wheels come off and until, yeah, you know, but I hope he can come back. That's, I mean, as, as Brits, we can both hope that he can come back, even if he is Scottish again now. Let's talk other potential contenders. Roger Federer competing in this French Open again. He has won the tournament once, although, as I already said, that was only because of Nadal's shock defeat to Robin Soderling in that competition. Federer played him in the final and eventually came through. But he's got a dismal record against Rafael Nadal and Djokovic when it comes to playing them both on clay. So do we think he's a contender? The player that I would also throw into the mix, and he'd probably, after Nadal and Djokovic, be my outside bet, is winner of the US Open, Dominic Thiem. I knew you'd bring him. I absolutely because, knew you'd find a way to bring him up because he won his because first major. No, because Clay is actually TM's best surface. He's made the French Open final in 2018 and in 2019. We saw in the first round, he annihilated Marin Cilic, a Grand Slam champion in his own right, in straight sets. So TM now, fresh off the back of his first Grand Slam win, probably believing in his head that he can now compete with the best. He's got that first Grand Slam under his belt. You actually said on the podcast, Rory, that sometimes that can be the motivation and give players almost the confidence that they can compete at that level. Once they've they've won one, they can maybe go on and win a couple more in quick succession. Do I think he's in the same bracket as Nadal and Djokovic on claim? No, I don't. But do I think he's got an outside bet of reaching the very least will see Tia making the semi-finals. So at the very least, he's going to have a chance to beat Nadal or Djokovic. Uh, but I definitely don't think we can rule him out. We'll finish on Federer, though. Any chance for you of Federer challenging? Um, I'm not entirely sure. I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm never going to back against a, a fellow Swiss person, I suppose. 
And Roger Federer. You're not Swiss. I literally am. I literally am part Swiss. I bet you didn't know that. But so I'm never going. There's no my, way you're Swiss. I actually, I actually am. But I'm never. I'm not going. I'm not going to bet against against my compatriot. I'm not. I'm not <laughs> Come on. I'm actually part Swiss. I'm. I'm not going to bet against him. You've also, never ever expressed an interest in Roger Federer. Even ever. even if I weren't part Swiss, I would still be saying. I'm not going to bet against Roger Federer under any circumstances. I think one thing I would like to come back to just briefly is, is the point we just made about team is yes, we've mentioned that he, he had some success that he, he reached a number of finals and then lost them. Maybe now he's made that breakthrough since he has won his first major. Then maybe we could see a relapse at the French open. And I think if he then does that, if he goes and wins the French open and he's won two back-to-back opens, then we're going to start taking this guy really seriously. Anyway, though, that brings us to the end of today's show. We do hope you've enjoyed it. Please do get in touch with us on social media, on Twitter and on Instagram, at The Sports Bubble. If you've got any questions or any comments, do send them in and we'll try and respond to you. Stay tuned for a special episode of The Sports Bubble where we'll be doing a WSL special with a very special guest as well. So do stay tuned for that later on in the week. For now, though, we do hope you've enjoyed and we'll catch you next time.